We're in John chapter 13 this morning. If you would turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 13. We're in verse 1. Once again, let's pray and ask God's blessing on the teaching of the word. So. Father, we thank you for your love for us that is expressed in service. That you, Jesus, came as a servant and that you're leading us to serve. Would you confront our selfishness to send your Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us into deeper surrender of you? And we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Is there someone in your life that's really impacted you through service? Maybe it was one single act of kindness Or maybe it's been a life of service where they've served you over the years. But many times it's the actions of service that really touch and change our lives. I was reading the news this week and I saw this article. I wanted to throw this picture up on uh, the screen. And it's a five-year-old boy that woke up uh, from tonsil surgery and his mom had stepped out of, of the room and The nurse came and comforted him, and I read what was posted on the hospital's Facebook page. It says, when Slade Thomas woke up from tonsil surgery, all he wanted was to be snuggled and cared for. Not thinking twice, Annie Hager, RN, climbed right into the bed and snuggled the little boy. As a nurse, providing care is one thing, but making sure our patients are calm and comfortable matters just as much. It's nurses like Annie who show true compassion that keep our patients happy. During Nurses Week, we thank our nurses for taking time to make personal connections with patients. Annie's connection with Slade was so real that he brought her flowers at his follow-up appointment. Isn't that powerful, you know? It's not really part of her job. She didn't have to hop into that hospital bed and give this boy comfort, but she chose to do it. And she didn't think twice about it. And I think his little life was impacted. He'll probably remember that that moment and he is thankful for it. We see Jesus coming to the last few days of his earthly life. He's at the last supper with his disciples and he chooses to serve them. He chooses to wash their feet. And the disciples are served so that they could go on and serve. Christ has served us to then provide an example for us that we would live this lifestyle of service uh, to others. Verse one. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come and that he should depart from this world to the Father. At this point in our study of the Gospel of John, we've talked quite a bit about the Passover feast. Jesus will be the ultimate fulfillment of the Passover feast, that sacrificial lamb. It's a few days till the feast. It's a few days till his crucifixion. And Jesus knew that his hour had come. He knew that it was time for him to be crucified upon the cross. Sometimes in our lives, we know that something's coming, don't we? Maybe it's a graduation, maybe it's a a wedding, maybe it's a retirement, maybe it's a doctor's appointment, a surgery that is scheduled. Maybe you know you're losing your job and there's a termination date, but Jesus went through his life with this divine timetable. He knew that his life was going to end at the cross and this hour has come that he should depart from the world to the Father. He knew the cross wouldn't be the final word. 
He knew that the cross would lead to the resurrection and the resurrection to the ascension with the Father, that he is going to finish his mission and rejoin fellowship with his Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is a statement that really sums up the life of Christ. He loved his own. And he's going to be faithful to love them to the end. We see Christ's faithful love. In his service to the disciples, he loved them. I think the disciples would tell us in their three years with Jesus that they knew that they were loved by Christ. They knew that they were served by Christ. They belonged to him. They were his own. And he was committed to loving them to the end. He wasn't going to give up on the disciples. He's going to love Judas to the end, even though Judas will betray him. He's going to love Peter to the end, even though Peter is going to deny him. One of the confidences that we have in our lives is knowing that Christ is never going to stop loving us. He's never going to stop loving you. He's going to be faithful to you throughout your whole life. He started the good work. He's going to finish the good work. He's going to faithfully love us through all of eternity. We're served by Christ's faithful love to us. Verse 2, after supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. We see this demonic activity taking place in Judas's life. Judas has opened himself up to the things of Satan. Satan then comes and plants this in Judas's heart and mind to betray Christ. Satan's ultimate attack was to kill Christ, but little did he know it was simply leading into the plan of God. This shows you how much more powerful God is than Satan. When Satan attacks, God's not defeated. Ultimately, God's plan is fulfilled. Satan's real. He's a big snake. But he's not greater than our God. And here's his greatest attack, and yet it goes right into the plan of God. We should examine a little bit the heart of Judas as well, because he's very close to the things of God. He did choose to follow Christ. He did choose to give these three years to spend every day with Christ. He heard the teachings of Christ. He witnessed the miracles of Christ. He had very deep conversations with Christ, but yet his heart was not surrendered to Christ. He's stealing the money that had been provided for the ministry. He's going to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. His heart doesn't belong to the Lord. And this lets us know that we can be close to the things of God, but it doesn't mean that we have surrendered to the Lord. You maybe have witnessed the Lord. Maybe you've been very close to his work. Maybe you've even studied the scriptures. Maybe even those around you would think that you're surrendered to Christ. I think everyone thought that Judas was a follower of Jesus, but yet he wasn't. His heart wasn't surrendered to the Lord. And even his heart is being moved in this demonic direction. So it's not too late. It's not too late for you to say, you know what? This is going to be the day that I'm going to turn to Christ in a genuine way. I don't want to simply be close to the things of Christ, but I want to surrender to Christ. Jesus is not just looking for church attenders. He's not looking for those that just change the outward behavior But he invites us into a relationship with him where we surrender our hearts and lives to him. 
I understand this to some degree. I grew up in a Christian home. I was around the things of God, but I did not surrender my heart and life to Christ, and I had a hard heart toward, towards God. And it wasn't until I was in high school that the love of God hit me. I understood the love of God, and I surrendered myself uh, to Christ. It, it takes that, not just simply being around the things of God, but surrendering to God. I love verse 3. Jesus, knowing the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. Christ is thinking about the hour that's right in front of him, this hour of crucifixion. And in the midst of that, he relies upon what he knows. And Jesus knows that the Father has given all things into his hand. He's assured of his relationship with the Father and the authority that the Father has given to him. There's no doubt, even though he's going to suffer, even though he's going to be crucified, that doesn't shake the position he has with the Father and the authority that he's been given by the Father. He also knows that he came from the Father, the Father sent him, and that he's going to return to the Father. This answers the two biggest questions that I think people wrestle with. Where did I come from and where am I going? And God provides the answer uh, for that. Science tries to answer those questions. Philosophy tries to answer those questions. I'm pretty sure Google tries to answer those two questions, right? The Bible tells us we know where we came from. Absolutely. That we're all created in the image of God. You're the chief expression of God's creation. More than animals, more than the redwood forest, more than the aspens here in, in Colorado, you bear the image of God. You were created and you were designed by God. That's where you came from. You're not happen chance. You're not a product of evolution. You came from God. Understanding that about yourself and others is hugely important. If you miss that, you're going to miss so much in life. It really affects your worldview if you understand and you believe that you were created by God. If you're wrestling with that or have questions about that, I would encourage you to read the first few chapters of Genesis and see where God clearly states that we're created in his image. The question of where we're going depends on what you do with Christ. If you believe in Christ as your savior, if you allow him to be your Lord, if you trust Christ for salvation, you know exactly where you're going, right? You know that every day you're headed closer to eternal life. We're going to go to be with the Father. Our last breath here on earth is our first breath in heaven. When we go through hard times, and we will, we have to rely on what we know. Jesus is relying upon what he knows. I know this. I know that I'm come from the Father. I know that I'm going to return to the Father. And we rely upon that. We go, this is what I know in the midst of this dark trial. That I'm created in God's image as a believer. I'm going home to eternal life. Verse 4. Rose up from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. Christ's humble service. Knowing where he's going, knowing that his life is just about over here on earth, how does Christ respond in this ultimate authority? With the ultimate authority given to him 
by the Father he humbly serves. He lays aside his garment, he takes up a towel, and he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Few things are taking place here. This is the Last Supper. In the other Gospels, we see Jesus explaining to us communion, what we're going to celebrate in just a moment together. That the bread represents his broken body, that the cup represents his shed blood of the new covenant. See, as Jesus is washing the disciples' feet, it's not that this is the only moment of Christ's service. This exemplifies his whole entire life. And this points to what he's going to do upon the cross. Everything about Jesus is that he came to be a servant. In Mark 10, 45, it says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus' mindset, his thinking was not one of, I desire to be served, though that that would be right and appropriate, but he came, how can I serve? How can I give my life as the ransom for for many? The incarnation of Christ is an amazing act of Christ's humble service. God taking on human flesh, the creator of the galaxies, the one who spoke the stars into existence, humbles himself and comes as a man. Born in Bethlehem, this obscure city, this small town, in poverty, no place for him to be born in the inn. Instead, he's born in a manger, placed in a feeding trough, in a barn, right? Probably a cave where the animals were were kept. That's humility, isn't it? Christ was a six-pounder, seven-pounder, maybe eight pounds. God in human flesh, the creator in his humble service is dependent upon his creation, Mary, who's a young mom, probably a teenager. That's scary, right? If Mary doesn't take care of Christ, he's not going to survive. Jesus was a refugee to Egypt. His life was in danger, and so they had to go to Egypt for refuge. Mary and Joseph had to wrestle with cultural differences, language differences, and this is Christ's life. They end up in the Galilee region in Nazareth where Christ spends most of his life in obscurity as a carpenter. Not well known, not with a lot of followers, not with a lot of likes on Facebook. His Instagram wasn't popular. He wasn't posting, check out the table that I made today, right? He lived in humble service. He simply served. His ministry, he was rejected rejected by his own family, rejected by the religious leaders, all of this leading to the cross. And this is the way that Christ serves us. He serves us by laying his life down upon the cross. What's up with this washing the disciples' feet? Why did Jesus wash their feet? This is gonna blow your mind. Because their feet were dirty, right? That's exactly why Jesus washed their feet. They're walking through dirt roads with sandals. They've got dirty feet. This was the job of the servant or slaves to wash the feet of those that would come into the home. Jesus takes on the position of the slave, takes on the position of the servant. There's times where churches will have foot washing services 
And there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but that's not the idea of the text. The idea of the text is not some ceremony where you really don't need your feet washed because you've got shoes on. What is being taught here is Jesus is meeting a need inside of the home that nobody really wants to do. Let's be honest, feet are gross. They're just gross, right? They stink, they smell, they get dirty. In children's ministry, last weekend they were covering this text, they're a week ahead of me, and the teachers washed the kids' feet. Now there was probably some real need there. I'm sure there were some boys that were running around and had dirty feet that needed their feet washed, especially at the Saturday night service as they played all day and then come to to Saturday night service. So for us, when we look at this, we go, Christ was humbling himself to meet those needs inside of the home. This is equivalent to washing the dishes, to taking out the trash, to sweeping the floor. Christ was meeting those needs, putting other people's needs in front of his own. In verse 6, then he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? We can relate to Peter in this. Peter knows exactly who Jesus is. He's made the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is God in human flesh. Washing my feet. No, Jesus, this is all backwards. I need to wash your feet. You can't be washing my feet. In verse 7, Jesus answered and said to him, what, am I, what I am doing you do not understand now, but you will, you will know after this. We can relate to this. At times our parents did things that we didn't understand, that confused us, maybe we didn't agree with. We get further down in life and we go, oh, I realize why mom did that. I realize why dad did that. And Jesus is saying to Peter, the light bulb's going to go on further down the road. But Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. These are strong words. And we start to see some of the pride coming out in Peter's heart. And not too long, Peter is going to deny the Lord. Don't misunderstand, Peter loved the Lord. He was committed to the Lord, but he underestimated his own strength. He wasn't aware of his his own weakness. And he says, Jesus, you're gonna never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you will have no part with me. Jesus is teaching a greater lesson here. There's the lesson of, of service, but there's also this picture of Jesus saying, look, I'm gonna wash your feet But in just a moment, I'm going to go to the cross, represented in the communion table, to wash you from your sins. See, God's not first and foremost concerned with our service. That comes secondary. What first is, we have to get to a place of humility where we're receiving the gracious gifts from Christ. We're going, my feet are dirty. Jesus, I allow you to wash them. Christ, my life is dirty. I need your sacrifice. I need the blood of Jesus. Jesus, as your follower, my heart is still filled with so much selfishness. Would you help me? Would you come and change and transform my heart? And until we're ready to receive the gracious gifts of Christ, we have no part with Christ. There's no other way to be saved. You can't be saved by your own works, by your own efforts. The only way you can be saved is through faith 
and what Christ has done for you and receive that free gift of grace. Isn't it hard to receive kindness from God that we don't deserve? Isn't there a part of us that says, let me work for this a little bit? Isn't there some humility that wants to play off? Well, my feet don't stink. Or they're, they're not dirty. Well, my heart's really not that bad. Jesus, I, I don't need your help. And those are the things that Peter is wrestling with. Verse 9, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Peter changes his tune. He's like, well, if that's the case, if you've got to wash my feet for me to belong to you, then full immersion, here we go, right? My head and my hands as well. Jesus said to him, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him. Therefore, he said, you are not all clean. Peter says, you're, Jesus says to Peter, you're clean. So your feet is all that needs to be washed. You don't need to bathe your whole entire body. But then he looks at the group and says, not all of you are clean. Speaking of Judas. Remember, John is writing this after the fact. He's looking back on these events and going, I know why Jesus said you're not all clean because of Judas. So there is that deeper spiritual understanding that is taking place. Verse 12, so when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? Jesus is the master teacher. This is a teachable moment. Saying, guys, did you get this? Did you get what I have just done to you? Christ will do the same thing in our lives. Say, Did you understand what's going on in your life? Do you understand what I'm trying to teach you and instruct you with? Also, this is a great way to be able to share truth with others. Is first serve them. First love them. Commit that unconditional love to them. Find practical ways to be able to serve them. And many times that will lead to those teachable opportunities. To be able to share. Verse 13, you call me teacher and Lord... And you say, well, for so I am. In Christ's instruction, he says, you guys call me teacher and you call me Lord and that's appropriate. That's exactly what I am in your life. Have we gotten to that place where we have identified Jesus as our teacher and as our Lord? Jesus should be our primary teacher. Though we glean from spiritual mentors and and instructors and pastors and authors and a variety of different people in our lives, Jesus is the one who is our teacher. Jesus is the one who we look to to say, I want you, Jesus, to instruct me. I want you to guide me and direct me. And that's when a heart gets fertile soil for God to begin to instruct us. Who have you been looking to to teach you? And is it Jesus? Also, Jesus being our Lord, what does that mean? That he's our master. That we get this squared away, that he's in charge. You have the throne of my life. You're calling the shots of of my life. That's a continual decision that we make to surrender to him as Lord. So in light of Jesus being our teacher and our Lord, verse 14, if if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Christ's powerful example. His example, Jesus saying, look, now guys, I've loved you. I'm going to continue to love you. 
until the end. I've just served you and I have just washed your feet. And the reason I've done this is I want you to wash one another's feet. I've given you an example for you to follow. Examples are really powerful, isn't it? A lot of teaching is more caught than taught. What is meant by that phrase? Is as you're watching someone's life and they're living out an example, you catch it. You go, oh, okay. That's what it means to serve one another. I remember a basketball coach that I had in eighth grade. His name was Mr. Shea. And this was before my heart had really gotten reached for the Lord and I was going to a Christian school. And basketball was everything to me at that point. Mr. Shea would always do the running with us when he said, all right, guys, here's the the running that you would have to do. I played a lot of basketball and he was the only coach that, that ever did that. If we had to run wind sprints, he was running wind sprints. If we were doing push-ups, he was doing push-ups. And he was a good coach, and he was pretty, pretty stern, and there was no nonsense when it, when it came to him. But there was that example of him serving by him doing what he was asking us to do. And we would go to these basketball tournaments, spend the night, and Coach Shea would then start to talk baseball cards with us and basketball cards and hey what what card do you have and talk about his collection and then before you know it he was talking to us about the Lord and it was his example that really made me want to stop and listen to what he was saying in those those moments so we have an example to follow from Jesus now if we look at this teaching of Christ and we're honest with it This is not a suggestion from Jesus. This is not Jesus saying, well, if you feel like it, serve others. This is Jesus saying, if you're going to call me Lord, and you're going to call me teacher, and I served, then you need to serve, and you need to follow this example. Look at how closely Jesus defines this in verse 16. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. Jesus is saying, guys, you're not greater than me. I'm your master. I'm sending you. If I served, then you're going to serve as well. I think sometimes we give ourselves way too much leeway. We're kind of like, you know, if I feel like it, I'll serve. If it makes sense and benefits me in some way, I'll serve. Jesus is saying this is an imperative. If you are my disciple, if I'm your teacher, if I'm your Lord, then you're going to serve one another. You're going to wash one another's feet, follow, live inside of this example. So what might this look like in our daily lives? How would this change those that you live with? If you're single and you've got roommates How would this change if you said, I'm going to take the position of a servant? And it's hard to serve roommates. I remember when I was single and had roommates, it's like, man, living with dudes is nasty, me included. I have a good friend where we were roommates in school ministry and then afterwards, and he liked to cook up stuff in the kitchen. The only problem was, is like he'd leave the pot for weeks and just not clean it, right? So one time I'm like, I'm just going to wait and see how long this pot stays here. After two weeks, I gave up and I broke down and washed it, right? And that's hard. It's difficult to to say, oh, here's here's roommates that God's calling me to, to serve. 
For those of you that you're single, you don't have roommates. How is this impacting you to serve your neighbors? How would this change your perspective towards, towards your neighbors? For those of you that are married, how would this change your marriage, right? To be able to serve and meet those practical needs that are presented. To say, I'm going to do the dishes. Man, the, the floor needs to be mopped. I'm going to mop the floor. I'm going to do, do some laundry. I'm going to care to meet those practical needs inside of my home. Instead of complaining about it or getting upset about it or wishing that somebody else w- would do it. How would it change Monday morning going to work? I'm a servant. I'm here to serve Jesus by serving others. Because we can really cop an attitude at work, can't we? Maybe you've put some time in at your job and you said, I've got some seniority, so I'm not doing that. That's the foot washing job at work, right? That's the grunt's job at work. The rookie's got to put in his time. Maybe some things happen where somebody that doesn't have seniority puts in to get a holiday off. And you're really offended. You're like, man, I would have never done that in my first three years. Who do they think they are putting in for a holiday? I've been here all this time. I get Thanksgiving off, right? I get Memorial Day off. And to really come in and say, you know what? I'm just here to serve the Lord. So I'm looking for needs to meet that nobody else wants to meet. How would this change relationship with extended family? Ouch, right? This willingness to to serve and to be able to meet needs. How would it change when we get together with believers? If we're honest, a lot of times when we gather together with believers in a setting like this, or in a connect group, in a home, or at a coffee shop, secretly we're longing for believers to meet some need in our lives. We're wanting them to serve us. If they don't serve us adequately, what do we say? Forget you, I'm going to go find a different group of believers. And that's unhealthy. And eventually, in our relationship with Christ, we say, I'm not here to be served, but I want to serve others. Who can I pray with this morning? Is there a need that I can, can meet? Is there a way that I can show the love of Christ through caring for another believer? As we meet these practical needs that God has put before us, it is the physical things but it's also taking the time to listen to someone. Maybe the greatest need in your spouse's life is to engage them in conversation. Maybe there's a coworker that needs to experience the love of Jesus Christ by you being friendly to them. Christ as being a servant, I bet, was really good at eye contact. As he encountered people, I'm sure he's like, let me just take you in for a moment. You're made in the image of my father, right? I'm just going to love on you. I'm going to give you time. Can you imagine Jesus shopping over at King Supers or at Costco? Probably looks a lot different than me at Costco, right? Why are you stopping for samples? You're blocking the way. Come on, right? And the love of Christ just being exploded out on people through kindness and, and through, through love. So sometimes it's meeting a need, but sometimes it's taking the time to listen or the time to smile, or the time to to be able to to share. This defined Jesus, and it defined who the apostles were. Many times the apostles presented themselves 
not as great spiritual leaders, but as bondservants of Jesus Christ. What's a bondservant? A slave by choice. In the Old Testament, if the Hebrews had a Hebrew slave, a fellow countryman who had fell on hard times, they could only be a slave for seven years. And at the end of that time, they had to give them their freedom. If the slave said, man, I love my master. He's awesome. I want to continue to serve him. He could be a slave by choice. And the Bible calls it a bondservant. So the apostles laid hold of this and said, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. I'm a slave by choice. This is what has formed my identity. This is who I am. I'm choosing to be a servant. We end with verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. The blessing only comes through the doing, not just the knowing. Write that down. The blessing only comes through the doing, not just the knowing. How do we know this? Because of the warning light that goes on in our cars that we need to get gas. I've ran out of gas a handful of times. Why? I knew that I was running out of gas. My car very kindly, gently lets me know, hey, bro, stop and get some gas. But I didn't take the time to get gas. That's the dumbest statement on the face of the world, right? If I didn't take time to get gas, then I end up wasting more time because I ran out of gas. What's the blessedness of having a full tank? It means that you knew something and you did something about it. God tells us that we're blessed. We are blessed if we know these things and we do them. There's a blessing that comes through service. God's rescue from a selfish heart is service. The word blessed means, oh, how happy. This is the abundant life. Jesus lived the abundant life with this mindset of being a servant and putting other people's needs before his own. What's the greatest way to despair and depression? Think about yourself all day long. It'll work every day. Every day it will work The days that I'm most miserable are the days that I'm most selfish. But when I'm focused on Christ and the amazing way that he has loved me and served me and I choose to serve others, joy comes into my heart. Happiness comes into my heart. Guys, you can't get this anywhere else. You cannot buy this. No vacation can provide this. No home can provide this. No vehicle can provide this. No pleasure can provide this. If we don't get this, guess what? We're going to be sitting empty on vacation. We're going to be sitting empty this summer going, what in the world's wrong? But if we get this and we go, life is Christ, and the life of Christ is expressed through being able to serve others, we're going to find ourselves walking in the abundant life. Who's selfish in the room? Judas. Judas is the example of someone who is living a selfish life. He's sold out to himself and it leads to destruction. Jesus is an example of a surrendered life to the Father, expressed through service, and he has abundant life. Would you turn with me quickly to James chapter 3, and then we're going to enter into communion together. James chapter 3 verse 13 really contrasts selfishness and service. And where selfishness leads to destruction and service 
leads to life. This is James chapter 3, verse 13. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your heart, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, and demonic. Demonic activity gets to have its way in our selfishness. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. A strong warning about selfishness. In selfishness is confusion and every evil thing. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Verse 17 describes a heart of service. I cannot communicate to you anything that will impact your relationship with the Lord, and your relationship with people more. If we do not get this, we will suffer. We will suffer in our relationship with the Lord, and we will suffer in our relationship with others. I'm not saying we're not the children of God. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not communicating that. But I am saying there will always be this wrestling match with the Lord, if we don't get squared away that we're a servant to serve him. And there's nothing that will impact our relationships more until we understand the importance of serving. Nothing will be a greater gift to your marriage. Nothing will be a greater gift to your kids. Nothing will be a greater gift to your coworkers and your neighbors. It all hinges on selfishness. Jesus served to the point of going to the cross for Judas. Jesus served to the point of going to the cross for Peter. Jesus served to the point of going to the cross for Eric. That's to the depth in which Christ has served us. This is not easy. This is not when it feels good. This is not when someone is lovable or appreciates our service. This is when it's difficult to serve. When there's a Judas in our life, when there's a Peter in our life, where there's someone who doesn't appreciate it, to say, I'm not doing this for you. This isn't for my spouse. This isn't for my kids. This isn't for my coworker. I'm doing this for the Lord. I'm doing this because Jesus said, hey, buddy, you need to follow my example. I'm calling you into this life of service. And as that sinks into our hearts and sinks into our lives, we begin to enjoy the blessed life that Jesus spoke about. Would you stand with me? Let's pray and prepare our hearts for communion. Jesus, we're amazed and we're humbled by your service for us when we didn't appreciate it when we didn't understand it, when our heart was hard towards you, you went to the cross for us. You took our sins. And Lord, you know our nature is so selfish. And you're calling us out of that selfishness into a life of service 
You've also promised to give us the help of the Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, would you, would you help us and move us into greater service? As we take communion today, may it be a, a special time with you. Would you minister to our hearts and deal with our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen.